Hello and welcome to episode two of the um, Alberta Paramedic AHS study notes. Um, I am going to be going over the next protocol in line, which is adult assistly and pulseless electrical activity. Um, I don't think that this is any, this is the meat and potatoes of being a paramedic and just working in emergency medicine in general. I don't think there's anyone that has any major questions about how this protocol works. It's another super linear one. Um, so I'm going to jump into it. I'll do the same format that I did in episode one, where I just go through uh, the protocol initially, and then I'll go through the drugs and the notes, and then uh, I'll dig into some Tintinale stuff um, and, and just what that textbook says about um, adult assistive impulsive electrical activity arrests. Um, so let's get into it. We start with the standard approach and ongoing assessment, just like every other protocol. Um, you identify uh, someone that doesn't have a pulse, so we're going to start CPR. Um, we're going to treat concurrently with the basic adult airway protocol using an OPA and an NPA as well as a BBM. And we're going to search and treat for possible causes using our H's and T's, which I'll go over later. And uh, it says here, consider ALS intercept. Of course, if you are an ALS intercept, you can consider uh, calling a backup crew. Um, the next one is assess rhythm and multiple leads. And I think it says in notes that... What does assess rhythm and, and multiple leads mean? I think it means um, if you want to call the arrest, um, you have to confirm assistly and PEA with a four lead and not with paddles. Um, I think that's a paperwork thing. I'm not sure the rationale behind it, but uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it says that in notes. I'll double check after. Um, so we've got CPR going, we've got our airway controlled, and we have backup on the way, and we're searching for possible causes. We do that for two minutes with CPR going, and then we check a rhythm. So after two minutes, we stop, check a rhythm. Uh, we don't want to stop CPR for longer than 10 seconds. Again, we'll go into that later. Um, and then if the rhythm's shockable, it kicks us into the shockable rhythm protocol. But um, most assistly and PEA arrests that I've been on stay that way until we call it. So um, we check our rhythm and then we go back into two minutes of CPR. We look at establishing vascular access at some point in this time. Um, and this is most of the time that I see paramedics deploying the IO gun just because it's super easy, it's super fast, and we, push, we can push all the drugs in an arrest situation through it. Um, and then we look at giving epinephrine, 0 0.1 milligrams per milliliter um, diluted, so it's the pre-filled uh, pre syringes, and we give the one milligram, the full one milligram syringe, IV or IO, Q three to five minutes as needed. Why do we give epinephrine? Um, I think a lot of people are uh, misinformed on this one. I've heard a lot of people say, oh, we give epi because it has beta-1 principles. Um, and that's not it. Like, if you if you don't know what the uh, properties of epinephrine are, it has three different functions. So it, it operates on alpha-1, beta-1, and beta-2. Um, alpha-1 is vasoconstrictive properties. So it uh, squeezes your whole vascular system down and closes down the container space. And that's what we're looking for. The, the theory behind it, which isn't really proven in research. Research actually shows that epinephrine uh, harms outcomes. Again, we'll go into that later. But the theory behind us giving epinephrine is it squeezes that container space down. And uh, we're only getting like 10% of blood flow that we would normally get with compressions. So when we squeeze that container space down, the theory is that it increases cerebral perfusion pressure. And uh, that's the main goal of doing CPR and all this in general. Um, the other two things that epinephrine activates would be um, beta-1 and beta-2. So the easy way to memorize those is um, beta are things in the chest. So there's your heart and your lungs in your chest. Um, you have one heart and two lungs. So beta-1 activates um, your heart. It makes it go faster. It makes the conductivity go faster. It makes it squeeze harder. Um, so I've heard a lot of people say, oh, we give epi because um, it's innervating that. But... Um, if the heart's not already beating in the first place, I don't think it helps it. Uh, maybe there's some research behind it, but um, it's mainly for the alpha-1 properties. And finally, um, the beta-2 properties, it will cause um, bronchodilation and just open things up in your airways um, so that you can breathe better. And epinephrine is a natural hormone that gets released in a fight-or-flight response um, that, yeah, it, like, it jacks up your, your blood pressure, it makes your heart beat faster, and it helps you breathe better. And it's just uh, one of those things that um, your body naturally releases to... Um, help you in a fight or flight situation. Um, so the next box is uh, treat concurrently with adult airway advanced protocol if required. 
and uh, that boots you down into kind of the last box here, which we're, is going to be the meat and potatoes of this entire podcast, mainly because I don't think that anyone really has any issue with what I've just gone over. It's pretty much you start CPR, you control the airway, and you uh, do two minutes, five cycles, and you check a rhythm. Super easy. We give epinephrine. No one's had an issue with giving epinephrine. But the last box, I feel like, is just kind of glazed over. Like, everyone gets caught up in the um, excitement of going to a code, I guess. And uh, I don't think a lot of people really, truly go through their H's and T's, or even have them memorized, for that matter. And I don't think that they have a... Like, I know that I didn't. Um, I, I don't think anyone really has, like, a, a major understanding of, like... Um, when to look for or how it works with uh, hypercalcemia or sorry hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, hypermagnesemia, um, beta blocker overdose, and calcium channel blocker overdose, and then um, that's the same with like the prolonged rest for uh, sodium bicarbonate, pre-existing hyperkalemia, like renal failure, TCA, ASA overdose. So I'm gonna go over those. I'm not gonna like delve into the box majorly. I'll just say that like um, there's three main drugs that we give are uh, three yeah i guess like normal saline sodium bicarb and calcium chloride so sodium bicarb we give two different doses if we suspect excited delirium um, we give two milliequivalents fast iv push and if um, we are suspecting tcrasa overdose um, or a prolonged arrest or pre-existing hyperkalemia we will give uh, one gram slow iv push um we can give normal saline one to two liter boluses as well in the excited delirium syndrome, um, just because excited delirium can cause um, like a hyperthermia. So giving them room temperature normal saline will help cool them down. Um, and then, yeah, calcium chloride is just given in all of those other, um, pretty much the rest of them. So hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, hypermagnesemia, beta blocker overdose, and calcium channel blocker overdose. Um, then the final box just says pulse present and it kicks you out to the return of, uh, spontaneous circulation protocol. Or if you say no to that, um, it'll say consider withholding or discontinuing the resuscitation protocol. So pretty easy. Um, let's just dig into the pharma. Uh, the drugs here are super simple. I think everyone knows, um, epi, sodium, bicarbonate, calcium chloride, maybe calcium chloride a little bit more loosely, like before I even put this into like my study notes into a voice format. I had to spend a lot of time on calcium chloride because I didn't really understand how it worked. Um, and I still might not really, but I'll do my best to try and explain it. So epi, it's a sympathomimetic, it's a natural hormone. Um, it has alpha adrenergic effects um, in resuscitation. That's primary, it's primary use. Um, and the idea is to increase the cerebral and coronary blood flow during CPR. And the concentration um, is 0.1 milligrams per milliliter and it was previously identified as one in 10,000. So uh, we give the one milligram IVIO and there's uh, a Q three to five minutes on that and there's no contraindications in the emergency settings. Much like sodium bicarbonate, um, it's an alkalizing agent. Uh, it alkalizes through the bicarbonate buffer system. Um, and it is used in all of the indications that I just went over, um, the two milliequivalents per kilogram for excited delirium syndrome or the one milliequivalent if you're worried about um, like electrolyte imbalances. Um, I don't know if I already said this, but no EMS contraindications. And uh, it says in the very bottom here under the notes, routine use in cardiac arrest is not recommended. And that's just kind of like quickly glazed over, but I think that that's... Um, there's some emerging, emerging research that shows that we're over, overusing sodium bicarbonate in an arrest situation. Um, it should only be reserved for prolonged arrests. And I don't know exactly what the timing on prolonged, prolonged arrest is, but I would say anything longer than 30 minutes. Um, and I, I believe from what I've read, the research is showing that um, sodium bicarb is actually harming patients um, in, when it's used in an arrest situation a lot of the time. And it's uh, having a negative effect on um, outcomes. And from what I understand, it's not really understood. Like sodium bicarb to me seems like um, a great thing to uh, try and give. Like it, it seems like in an arrest, it would help quite a bit. But um, that's not what the research is, is showing. So uh, the one last thing under notes with sodium bicarb is avoid extra vastation. 
um, due to risk of tissue irritation or necrosis. So that's just like make sure your IV is patent. Um, if you're in an arrest, that's probably the last worry on your mind other than you need to get the drug inside of them. Um, and then the final one is calcium chloride. So it's an antiarrhythmic. It's given in um, all the indications I already said. It's given in a one gram dose. We're not repeating it. Um, the contraindications here is hypersensitivity, hypercalcemia, because it's calcium, um, and patients with digitalis toxicity. And then the notes are avoid extravastation uh, due to the risk of tissue irritation and necrosis. And it's not recommended for routine treatment and cardiac arrest outside of hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, and hypermagnesemia. Um, so let's just go over, we'll go over that last little bit of the algorithm that I just kind of glazed over, which is like the big electrolyte imbalances that I, I think that, I, well, I know that I needed a lot of like study time with and uh, time to go over it because I didn't understand uh, much of it at all. So, and the main one is the calcium chloride. Like how does calcium chloride work? What exactly is hyperkalemia? What is hypocalcemia? What is hypermagnesemia? And uh, the overdoses, like beta blocker, how does it help a beta blocker overdose and how does it help a calcium channel blocker overdose? Um, well, we can eliminate two of those pretty easily, like the, the two overdoses. So calcium channel blocker, we're giving calcium chloride and, and the reason behind that, or sorry, actually, and hypocalcemia. So hypocalcemia, beta blocker overdose, calcium channel blocker overdose. That eliminates um, three out of the six that are like pretty obvious gimmies. So uh, hypocalcemia and sodium channel blocker overdose, it's just replacing low calcium in the hypocalcemia setting. Or calcium channel blocker overdose, it's just um, giving you that uh, extra gradient to help like ram calcium through in the non-blocked channels. So <clears throat> um, those two are gimmies. And then the beta blocker overdose um, is also pretty easy. Calcium, I've written down here, um, pretty much acts as, uh, it plays an integral role in the heart's automaticity, conduction, contraction, and vascular tone. So uh, it just helps, um, it's kind of the opposite of magnesium. Like magnesium is like a muscle relaxant pretty much. And calcium is the opposite. It, it like causes muscles to contract more. So um, it will help the heart beat in the less beats that it gets in the setting of a beta blocker overdose, if that makes sense. And that kind of leads you into hypermagnesemia. Like I said, like we give magnesium sulfate because it's kind of a muscle relaxant, right? Um, so if we have really high magnesium, we want to counter that with um, calcium because calcium is the opposite of magnesium. Magnesium is a muscle relaxant. Calcium causes muscles to contract and do their job better. Um, and the mechanism, like you don't really need to know this, but I might as well explain it because there's some people uh, that really enjoy knowing how things work exactly. And uh, I'm far from, from an expert, but from what I studied, I have it written down here. Um, it works at the neuromuscular junction. So you have your neuron, like electricity, where it meets with the muscle, right? And that neuron will release um, neurotransmitters that attach to the muscle and tell it to contract. So before it releases those, um, those like, uh, transmitters into that neuromuscular junction, um, calcium, so the drug that we're talking about, calcium chloride, or just calcium, sorry, uh, will attach to the neuromuscular junction and it works as almost like a key to a lock to release the neuro the neurotransmitters. So calcium has to get in there um, when the nerve wants to fire the muscle and it's like, um, I guess it's like insulin to glucose. It's like a, a key and lock mechanism. And uh, what magnesium does is it, it randomly blocks calcium. And in the proper gradients, um, so your neuron's trying to fire, your calcium uses the key and lock and it fires the muscle. And magnesium, every so often, will just block the calcium randomly. And that's in, like, good concentrations. And what that does is it stabilizes um, the membrane, like the neuromuscular junction. It kind of keeps it stable. But in the setting of uh, really high concentrations, like, let's say we give mag sulfate. It will cause a slight muscle relaxation. The calcium can still unlock the key most of the time, but it kind of weeds out some of those um, extra signal firings, which can cause, like... Um, preeclampsia, um, 
what's the other one that we give it for? Um, oh, like in the lungs, if it causes bronchoconstriction, right? So that's all muscles that are like overfiring. So we give a little bit of extra magnesium and it just kind of blocks that calcium key and uh, stops some of those signals from going through. Now in hypermagnesemia, you have way too much blockade and your muscles aren't firing at all. So we wanna give some, um, some calcium to kind of counteract that and uh, it works on the same gradient, I guess, when you give the, um, the one gram. So you just have that extra calcium, or uh, yeah, calcium to float around and help counteract that hypermagnesemia. Um, <clears throat> so that covers hypocalcemia, we're replacing what's lost. Hypermagnesemia, we're increasing, um, well, I just explained it. We're increasing those, those uh, gradients or those, those, like, I don't know, the salt and pepper of like um, stimulating muscle. Um, beta blocker overdose and calcium channel blocker overdose are both, uh, we already went over. And then the last one's hyperkalemia. And this one is like, I'm still a little bit not sure about it, but I'll do my best to explain it. Um, if we go way back into like EMT or medic school or just like bio 30, we have our cell and resting membrane potential and that um, the sodium potassium pump that's involved with that. So uh, just to give like bring you back really quick, you have a cell that has um, sodium and potassium on, on both sides inside and out. And that cell has a semi-permeable membrane and uh, they freely kind of float in between. Um, now there's a pump on that cell membrane that actively pumps out in a three to, to two ratio, uh, three potassium into the cell and two sodium out of the cell. Um, and those, it's constantly pumping. So you get this resting membrane potential where um, you have more potassium inside the cell and more sodium outside the cell. And the, uh, the resulting charge is negative inside the cell um, if the pump's doing its job and everything is, is kind of copacetic that way. Now what happens if we have too much potassium? Um, too much potassium increases the gradient on the outside and it kind of mixes the, it, it like muddles the line of, of negative and positive charge. So um, again, if you think back to um, how a cell depolarizes, there's a little graph and it'll, it kind of has like voltage on one side and uh, voltage on the y-axis and time on the x-axis. And it starts kind of like, uh, it's just like how a cell depolarizes. So it, it like sodium rushes into the cell. So it like has a, a really sharp spike and then it kind of dips down a little bit and a saddle back and then it slowly repolarizes. Um, and what happens is if you have uh, too much potassium on the outside of the cell, that's kind of like leaking in and, and muddying the lines of um, that negative charge that's inside, um, you, it kind of brings you up to something called an abs or all or none uh, threshold potential. So, and what that is, is it's like a trigger on a cell. Um, you can get like a signal that comes along that doesn't aggravate it or bring the um, voltage up enough to, to do that all or none potential. Um, so the cell won't fire. And benzos kind of have this, the opposite effect of um, what hyperkalemia uh, has. Benzos will like make your, your it, they let chloride into the cell and chloride is negatively charged. So it it like really dumps the, the um, voltage down of that cell versus um, if potassium is leaking in because the gradient's so high, it kind of raises that millivoltage up and it gets dangerously close to that all or none threshold potential. And that's not good because if we actually get to that threshold potential, that's especially in the cardiac cells, everything goes haywire. And that's why we end up in cardiac arrest situations in hyperkalemia. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. it. It turns your, like, let's say if this, the cell is a gun in the gun analogy, um, you have a trigger that has lots of travel before it fires. Um, and what hyperkalemia will do is it will turn that long pull of a trigger into a hairline trigger and it'll just fire on its own. And even worse, it can take the trigger out of the equation completely and the gun will just fire completely on its own and be completely dysrhythmic. Um, alternatively, and this isn't part of the proto this protocol at all, but benzos will make that trigger pull even longer. It'll make it really, really long. And uh, that's why it calms people down and uh, signals that should be getting through in a normal like homeostatic environment aren't getting through anymore. So that's the best way I can describe it. Um, 
I know it's confusing and, and that's honestly like that's not even something you really need to know. I like to kind of understand it even if I only remember it for like I'm pretty much like a goldfish like I remember it for three minutes and it's gone but it's still like I don't know nice having a resource and like I'll listen to this myself because again I forget everything um, and, and remember all right that's how hypermagnesia works or whatever hypermagnesemia rather. Um, so in the arrest setting um, it's important to know what causes um, hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, hypermagnesemia, and uh, there's a lot of causes, but the things that we're going to be able to tell in the field really narrows it down. So the, the single largest cause is renal failure with oliguria. What is oliguria? That's like a urine output less than a certain amount. I can't remember what it is, but um, it says it right here in Tintinelli's, renal failure with oliguria is the most common cause of true hyperkalemia. So that's good to know. Um, if you have an arrest and someone has, um, I don't know if you'll know if they have oliguria or low output, but um, if they have a history of renal failure, it's probably worth throwing um, calcium chloride one gram at them and see what happens. Um, some of the other ones would be, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it is uh, lysis of cancer tumors. Um, what does lysis mean? Anytime you lyse something, it's to destroy or break down. So um, sometimes if a cancer patient's going through cancer treatment and they have these cells that are filled with um, potassium in their normal state and they get lysed um, in mass, like there's a, you know, a, a cancer treatment that kills a ton of them, they'll go into a um, hyperkalemia state. And some of these cancer patients don't have... Um, like a DNR, right? And so we can definitely trial, um, I would probably trial calcium chloride on those patients as well. Um, what else here? There's a lot of renal stuff. It kind of uh, breaks down into like impaired renin aldosterone axis. So Addison's disease and uh, primary hypoaldosteronism. That's another good one. Um, increased plasma K-load. There's like it, it lists here like diet, salt substitutes, K-containing medications, um, that's exogenous causes, meaning outside of the body, endogenous causes, causes inside the body, uh, hemolysis, GI bleeding, uh, catabolic states, crush injuries, um, all those are pretty important. But again, um, are you really going to know, I guess crush injury you would know for sure. Crush injury would be a big, big one for MS and renal failure, but and like the cancer patient, but that's about it. Like we're kind of in the dark and we're, we're like really stabbing at things when we are trying to figure out what a patient's um, like clemic status is. Like we don't have any of the blood draws that a hospital has. So anyways, um, that kind of covers calcium chloride. I hope that was clear. Um, again, if, if you just look at calcium chloride and say to yourself, okay, I'm going to give that if someone, if a patient is like has renal failure, that covers off like 99% of what I just said, um, uh, but I hope you have a deeper understanding and then you have an appreciation for that because it took me hours of YouTube videos. <laughs> um, sodium bicarbonates and uh, normal saline, I kind of already touched on those, and uh, sodium bicarb in uh, prolonged arrest, um, not really proven with science, but I would say over 30 minutes, and that's just me saying that anecdotally. I I'm not research-based uh, on that decision at all, but I would just stay away from routine use of sodium bicarb. Um, Pre-existing hyperkalemia or renal failure, um, we want to give sodium bicarb for that. And um, that's also kind of a cool one that I didn't understand. So we just talked about hyperkalemia with calcium chloride, and calcium chloride kind of acts as a shield. Like it really amps up the charge outside of the cell so that the cell can do its job on the inside and keep that negative resting state. So it doesn't get that hairline trigger. Um, so if you think about calcium chloride is just kind of like a, um, like a, like a armor for like your muscle, I guess, like it makes sure that your muscle works and it, um, it's good that way. Sodium bicarb, um, has a mechanism on it. Well, more or less your cell has a mechanism during acidosis and alkalosis, your cells, um, in their normal function will try and help out with hydrogen ions. So um, pH stands for uh, probability of hydrogen, I think. Um, it's all based off of hydrogen. Hydrogen is what acidosis is based off of. 
Um, so your cell in a normal function has a one-to-one -one swap ratio during acidosis alkalosis with potassium. So your cell's sitting there and it'll say, oh my gosh, we're in acidosis, that's not good. I'm gonna give up some of the potassium that's naturally inside of me. By the way, your body's, 98% of your body's potassium is inside the cell. Only 2% rests extracellular. So um, it gives up some of that 98% and puts some potassium into the extracellular space, but in exchange for that, it'll take on hydrogen. And uh, if we go back to a hyperkalemic state where we have too much uh, potassium outside of the cell already, the cell trying to help it with acidosis is contributing to the problem. As smart as the cell is, is being and saying, oh, I'll take care of the acidosis. You're like, no, 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 we already have like a horrendous gradient here. That's not good. Um, so we want to put them into an alkalotic state, which will reverse that, that cycle. So instead of bringing on a hydrogen, it's saying, oh, I can give up a hydrogen and make more space for more potassium to come into the cell, which um, in exchange will help move you away from that hairline trigger into a longer pull trigger for that cell. Um, but, so that was kind of a neat thing. And the, the way like Tintinalis explains the, the ER like should look at um, hyperkalemia in general is first of all, you want to put that armor on the heart and make sure that it's doing its function. So you want to um, reverse the like um, static gradient that you have between the cell and the outside of the space. And you do that by adding calcium chloride, which has a plus two charge. That's why it's so good. It's sitting outside of the cell with a plus two charge, which makes the inside of the cell more negative when it comes to the gradient. Um, sodium and potassium only have a plus one charge. So uh, calcium's like really, really good armor. Um, <clears throat> and, oh God, I forgot what I was talking about. Oh, and then you, you work at bringing the um, potassium into the cell. So we do that um, and in the EMS setting, we only have the, or in, with AHS, we only have um, sodium bicarbonate to do that, one milliequivalent per kilogram. But there's other ways to do it as well. Um, you can use like glucose and insulin. And I believe uh, I've heard salbutamol before, but I didn't read about it in this, this time I studied it. But I think salbutamol moves um, potassium into the cell as well. So... Yeah, and then the last two I just memorized, TCA and ASA overdose. Um, I remember like bicarbonate is an alkalizing agent. So ASA is easy to memorize because it's an acid. ASA stands for acetosalicylic acid. So I've never forgotten, oh right, an acidic overdose we would want to give an alkalizing agent for. And I looked into it and I think um, the main that, that covers the main idea. Um, it did say... Uh, even a single dose of sodium bicarbonate can uh, increase the excretion of ASA, an ASA overdose in the urine by um, 10 to 20 times or something like that. It's, it's significant. And just to give you an idea of um, how much ASA is a deadly amount, 15 milligrams per kilogram is the therapeutic dose. 150 milligrams is the deadly dose. So that's 10 times right there. Um, and you're, if you just give sodium bicarbonate, it increases your excretion by 10 times. So it should revert the problem. Um, TCA overdose. From what I can understand about uh, tricyclic antidepressants, um, they're a sodium channel poison. So we're giving sodium bicarbonate for the, the sodium part of it, um, and it will help move uh, sodium through those sodium poison channels. So again, that's one milliequivalent per kilogram. And uh, yeah, that is pretty much everything in that last little box. I really hope that you learned as much as I did um, because that last box was like very vaguely understood to me. And uh, one of the biggest aha moments was definitely that magnesium uh, and cal or, uh, sorry, calcium chloride and how they work um, kind of opposite of each other. Like how magnesium is kind of a muscle relaxation and calcium chloride is, is kind of like a, a muscle... Um, I don't know, makes it better, a muscle, awesome enhancement, I don't know, I, I, I've got nothing, um, <clears throat> I'm going to move on, <laughs> so the last little bit of stuff that I would like to go over would be um, the notes. I'm going to kind of touch on some of these notes, but for the most part, I'm going to talk about um, H's and T's. So 
H's and T's, another super important thing in a REST, like, um, again, you might look at that protocol and be like, yeah, yeah, pulseless, like PEA and, and um, even the shockable rhythm of REST, like I've got it. But I, I think very few medics actually have the H's and T's memorized. And it's probably good to go over, especially with hopefully your newfound knowledge of um, those last treatable causes boxes. Um, so we've got H's and T's, uh, hypovolemia and hypoxia. I feel like those kind of go together, like you either have low blood or you have um, low oxygen. You can have um, acidosis, so hydrogen ion is the next one. Hypokalemia, hypercalcemia, um, so those are both kind of like um, imbalances. Uh, they kind of go together, easy to memorize. Hypothermia, tablets and toxins, um, cardiac tamponade, tension pneumothorax, and thrombosis, either uh, coronary or pulmonary in nature. So all of those treatments um, should be uh, pretty obvious to you, like if you don't know how to correct hypovolemia, that's not good. Uh, you probably shouldn't have passed ACP. <laughs> um, but yeah, you'd see so for hypovolemia, you get oxygen rapid tra transport, uh, volume infusion um, for things like... Um, Hyperkalemia, we just went over that, calcium chloride and sodium bicarb. Um, hypothermia, we would use the adult hypothermia cardiac arrest protocol. It goes on and on. You can check these in the um, list here. Um, and then it delves into hyperkalemia, which it has a pretty good little section on um, hyperkalemia. But the main thing that I would definitely check into, mainly because I can't show you um, on a podcast, but it shows you what the ECG will look like in a hyperkalemic patient. Um, so we have, doo -doo -doo. um, in a hyperkalemic patient, first of all, it says ACG findings in hyperkalemia, um, may not always present. So you could just have a hyperkalemic patient with a totally normal ECG. Um, but how hyperkalemia starts is a peaked T wave. Um, so in the repolarization, the, the T wave is when your, your cell repolarizes. And it makes sense because if you have um, so much potassium on the outside, uh, it would be pretty easy to repolarize. It's like, um, like that gradient just wants to do that. So I think that's why you get that really peaked T wave in the ventricles. And I'm sure that there would be, um, kind of like a, a peaked R wave, or I can't remember which wave would be the atrium repolarizing, but I'm sure it would be the same thing. Like it would be, um, really intense. So peak T wave, um, and then you get like a prolonged PR interval and then you get an absent P wave, and then you get a prolonged QRS duration, and you get a sine wave. And um, if you wanna know what all four of those steps are, so you get the peak T wave and then all that other stuff that I said, if you took a little ECG, um, like a PQRST like segment, and grabbed both ends and pulled them out, um, that's pretty much what hyperkalemia does to an ECG. Like the sine wave is literally just a squiggle and that will devolve into an arrest. So if you see a sine wave, that's really bad. Um, and you're pretty much into like VTAC, VFib, like, yeah, shockable rhythms at that point. Um, and then in neuromuscular findings, um, you'll notice just kind of like, and all of these, remember that all of these are gonna be like um, cell conduction issues, right? So you have that hairline trigger or no trigger at all. So your neuromuscular findings are gonna coincide with that so you'll get like weakness paresthesia which makes sense your central nervous system is saying move my arm and it won't because the trigger is already firing on its own um, you get a tremor because the triggers are firing on their own again you get arflexia which i'm assuming is like a core i don't know what arflexia is let me just double check define define arflexia absence of neurologic reflexes such as the knee-jerk reaction okay yeah so that makes sense again our, our uh, cells aren't firing properly. Respiratory failure, again, the cells aren't firing properly. Um, and ascending paralysis. So why would it be ascending paralysis? I have no idea. Um, maybe there's more potassium that pools in the bottom of your, I don't know. I'm not even gonna guess at that. Um, special circumstances, um, just make sure you administer sodium bicarb early in the cardiac arrest, secondary dioxide, delirium, or TCA overdose. And then finally, patient experience considerations. This was a surprise to me in appropriate circumstances, which means like the family isn't getting in the way of the arrest. It may be beneficial for family members to be present during resuscitation attempts. It has been reported to assist family members in adjusting with the death of a loved one. I don't know if there's like a study based on that or if it's just like a bunch of people have said it made me feel better, 
but um, it's good. Uh, I think it is good. Oh, I don't know if I want to call it PR, but I think it's good to uh, let family members know that everything was done to try and save them. Um, I, I don't want to say work an arrest that isn't workable, um, but yeah, if there is a workable arrest, um, let the family member know that you guys are doing um, everything you can to try and to try and help them, and that you're working hard and taking it seriously. Because I think standing in a kitchen is probably pretty horrendous when you all you have is your one auditory sense to listen to what's going on to your loved one. Okay, so anyways, that is pretty much everything that um, I wanted to go over from the AHS protocol and from Tintin Alley's. Tintin Alley's didn't have like a ton of stuff. It focused kind of more on um, in-hospital treatments and um, lab values for that. So I'm not really gonna bore you guys with the details there because I'd like to keep this EMS focused. Um, but I did have a friend named Mark, Mark Boutet, I'm going to um, say a bunch of the stuff that he sent to um, an Alberta EMS FOMED page. So um, free open access education is what FOAM stands for. And uh, if you guys want to follow it, I think it's just Alberta EMS FOAM, F-O-A-M. And uh, there's tons of really great resources on there and information. Um, but yeah, so he posted something on there, uh, just kind of a compilation of the... Um, classes that he attended that were based on research and this is in 2018 so this is like new cutting edge research on cardiac arrest and uh he just starts off by going over ross crates and kind of the futility that i think a lot of medics including myself feel when we are working these um like the we look at uh two different things or not we i don't i'm far from being research but the research people that are first smarter than me look at two different things in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest it's ROSC, so return of spontaneous circulation, and um, hospital discharge rates, and that's hospital discharge rates is like neurologically intact, not like, um, you know, someone that is on like ventilator support or something like that. These are people that can go home and have like Christmas dinner with their family again because of the work that we've done. Um, so right now with standard ACLS protocols, um, we're producing ROSC rates of about 10%. And neuro neurologically intact discharge of about two percent. So that's pretty dismal. It's not great, and uh, I think a lot of people um, run their codes in kind of a feeling of futility when they hear that. Like, what's the point? Only two percent. But I mean, tell that to the two percent of people that still get to have Christmas dinner with their families. Um, in the last five years, a number of aggressively innovative systems in the United States, uh, Korea, and France have proven that this does not have to be the case. Um, we're kind of on the cutting edge of like borderline bringing back a lot of people from the dead and all we have to do is uh, change a few things for example palm beach county ems in florida three years ago was obtaining ross rates of 50 percent and neuro neurologically intact survival rates of 15 percent that's pretty stunning um, another department in rialto california has been obtaining ross rates of 60 percent and uh, ROS rates of 39% in patients that are presenting with a systole in the first presenting rhythm. Now that kind of flies in the face of what um, AHS has in its notes, which is why I didn't even read them. It says at the, at the start of a systole and PEA notes um, that pretty much they're futile, like the prognosis is really bad and uh, yeah, like you, you still work them, but, but the outcomes aren't great. And, uh, and those ROS rates definitely fly in that face, like 39% is pretty amazing. Um, <clears throat> what else does it say here? Um, so it kind of goes into like, what have they done to obtain those ROSC rates? Um, and they have changed a bunch of things. So mechanical CPR is one. Now, what the research is showing in mechanical CPR is, it, is that it's no better if you have um, perfect human CPR and perfect mechanical CPR. The mechanical CPR is no better than human CPR. Um, where it gets better is when you try and make your code mobile. Um, and I'll go into that more in detail in a second here, but mechanical CPR doesn't tire. Um, you can uh, shock and intubate through it. Um, you can do a lot of things that you can't do with, um, with hands-on CPR, like anything that humans do, um, it's imperfect, of course. And especially when you have that code where you're walking out of the house and two people, you know, you have a firefighter on compressions and two people are holding a spine board trying to hold it up. Um, you might as well just discontinue um, 
your your compression efforts like that is ineffective cpr that's probably worse than doing it on a bed i couldn't think of a more springy or spongy thing to do cpr on um and that brings me into my next point that uh, research is showing that stopping cpr for 15 seconds reduces the possibility of rost by 50 percent which is huge that is like super mind-blowing and, and just sitting there for 15 seconds i mean if you think about it that would be like someone being on an ECMO machine. And if uh, you don't know what an ECMO machine is, it's extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. It's, it's pretty much a machine that is acting as your heart and lungs so they can have a break. Um, it, that would be like walking into an ECMO machine room and unplugging it for 15 seconds, which probably reduces their chance of survival by about 50% too. But stopping CPR isn't really, it shouldn't be an option for us. And we need to be a lot more aggressive on scenes, I think. I know I do. Um, when I say like these broad things, normally I'm just talking about myself. Um, but um, I need to be more aggressive with making sure that we are maintaining our CPR. Um, our CPR and our shocks are the only two things that have been proven to get ROSC and neurologically intact outcomes. Everything else is fluff. The airway doesn't matter. The drugs don't matter. The easy IO doesn't matter. Um, if you're sacrificing your CPR quality um, for getting an easy IO, you're definitely doing things wrong and your patient is suffering because of it for sure. Um, so yeah, that's a big thing. Um, studies on chest compressions and moving ambulances, um, furthermore have shown that human powered CPR quality begins to degrade the moment the ambulance is taken out of park and degrades in a linear relationship with speed at speeds over 30 kilometers an hour. Compressions were found to not provide adequate perfusion to the heart and brain. Um, and so we pretty much like this goes in, in conjunction with working codes on scene, like, uh, we always want to go, 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 but um, it's honestly better to work our codes on scene, and it goes into this in a little bit later, but the commonly accepted threshold for defining a medical intervention as futile is the probability of success less than 0.5%. The probability of ROSC in a patient that has been transporting while receiving human-powered CPR is far below that. It's something that needs to stop. So that was um, pretty wild to read for me when I first read that. I was like, wow, that's pretty crazy. And this is, again, like brand new stuff in 2018, but I'd imagine our protocols are going to follow um, soon after. So uh, the other things that we can touch on that these uh, counties are using is an impedance threshold device. I'd never heard of this. Um, it, its brand name is called a rescue pod. And in between ventilations, this device allows air to leave the chest cavity but not re-enter it. So it creates a negative space, creates a vacuum in the chest, right? It's the opposite of a PEEP device, right? A PEEP device holds air in. Um, a rescue pod or an impedance threshold device will uh, keep air out and allow blood to, to fill in into that space. So it lowers the interthoracic pressure and increases blood return from the brain. So it almost kind of like, yeah, it creates that vacuum, which sucks blood from the surrounding body, but also the brain. Um, and uh, the other technique is called heads up CPR. So this kind of goes in conjunction with that rescue pod. If the patient is receiving mechanical ventilations, it is possible to elevate the head and shoulders to allow gravity to assist blood drainage from the brain. So the optimal angle has been found to be about 30 degrees, and pig, cadaver, pig and cadaver studies have shown that this greatly decreases intracranial pressure and significantly increases cerebral perfusion. So everything kind of goes hand in hand. Like uh, intracranial pressure is pretty much um, directly related to like venous return. So you want to increase your venous return, which is what this does. It reduces intracranial pressure and um, gives you less impedance for that uh, CPR, um, mechanical CPR device or otherwise, to uh, pump blood into the brain. Again, remember that, it, uh, I know I said, or otherwise, but it does say just with mechanical CPR, is this possible? And I'd like to make a note here for sure that you should not be just like randomly doing this because you heard Andre talk about it on the podcast definitely don't break protocols. I'm just kind of giving you a heads up on what's been working for other counties and possibly what might be coming down the line for Alberta Health Services. Um, so moving on, optimal chest compressions produce about 33% of the normal perfusion from a beating heart. The same optimal compressions on the supine patients, what we're doing right now, only results in 10% of normal cerebral perfusion. So per pretty staggering numbers. And I'd say that that's probably one of the main things that's uh, resulting in um, the major increase in ROS and neurologically intact outcomes. And I was chatting with Mark about it, and he said that um, at the uh, expo, they were saying uh, how they discovered this heads-up CPR thing. 
And I guess it was in Korea, they have a lot of high-rise apartment buildings where the stretcher doesn't fit. And they'll get codes in an upper level and they'll be working the code in the elevator when they're going down with the stretcher in like a, a semi-fowler's or a high-fowler's position. And they were noticing that they were getting higher rates of ROSC in these elevators. So they did a study on it and that's why we're doing um, pig and cadaver studies to try and see what the cerebral perfusion pressure is when someone's sitting up. So super fascinating. Um, the last thing that he has here, I don't know if it's the last thing, but the next thing that he has is ALS drugs. I'll just read it because I think a lot of people know this already and I already touched on it a bit, but um, most of the time all of our ACLS drugs and especially epinephrine do not result in greater rates of neurologically intact survival. Um, this has been echoed by a doc, an ER doc that was working a code that I brought in and he was giving half doses of epinephrine and I asked him why and, and that was like four or five years ago and he said that he cited these studies that were um, saying, okay, we get ROSC bad, but neurologically intact survival is dismal for them. Um, epinephrine does increase the rates of ROSC, but it seems uh, that just about all the patients who regain a heartbeat because of epinephrine wind up with severe neurological compromise. It seems that the only drugs that do make a difference um, or uh, make a difference are magnesium in the case of non-perfusing torsades and calcium and bicarbonate for the hyperkalemic and acidotic uh, chronic kidney disease patient. Uh, and then there's a note here that says, echoing what I said earlier, bicarb is actually harming other patients if we're using it too early or routinely in, in cardiac arrest. Um, doo -doo -doo. Um, another really interesting fact, the Rialto, California department that has um, that really good ROSC rate with um, asystole and PEA arrests. Um, most of their arrests occurred um, 25 to 30 minutes after the first presenting rhythm um, to them. So asystole will present to them and then 30 minutes later they would get a ROSC rate. Um, which, so that's, yeah. Kind of goes to show that we should uh, be taking uh, assistedly and PEA codes seriously. They're not futile, and we should be focusing on um, CPR and shocks. Um, obviously, we don't shock assistedly, but um, if they do change, then we shock them. Uh, pediatric, pediatric arrests, some more interesting stuff here. 911 call takers were found to be much slower to recognize pediatric cardiac arrests and instruct callers to start CPR for pediatric patients than for adults. More pediatric cardiac arrests get miscategorized by dispatch as seizures and syncopes than for adults. For obvious reasons, including because children are easily carried, pediatric patients are transported much earlier in the resuscitation than adults, and this is highly detrimental to outcomes. And then uh, it says pediatric ROSC and survival climb rapidly with longer on-scene time and peaks at 25 to 30 minutes of resuscitation on-scene. So that, like, when I read that, I was like, oh man, I definitely got to stop doing that because um, I've been to a few pediatric arrests that I think were probably SIDS calls. Um, none of them were fun. They're probably the worst part of our job for sure. And uh, you just want to get them to the hospital to get that backup. Um, I don't know if other people are the same as me, but in my mind, I'm like, I just want backup. I want to like give this problem to like an ER physician who knows more than me and that will help this kid out more. But um, knowing this study, I'll probably grin and bear it and just try and stay on scene. Um, if yeah, survivability is much higher if I'm on scene. That's pretty interesting. So finally, termination of resuscitation. Um, rather, rather than using time limits, um, the number of rounds of CPR and epi, termination of resuscitation is now being based on physiological or imaging indicators. Um, what we have in the ambulance would be end-tidal CO2. Um, Intel CO2 that has been decreased below 10 despite high quality CPR and effective ventilation is an indication that metabolic activity is rapidly declining and further attempts are futile. And there's a study that goes hand in hand with this from the National Library of Medicine, or sorry, the U.S. National Library of Medicine that I looked up. Um, it says studies have shown that in patients who had end-tidal CO2 of 10 millimoles of mercury or less, cardiac arrest was associated with death. Like flat out, there's no like, was associated with some death. It says after 20 minutes of CPR, death occurs if end-tidal CO2 is consistently below 10 millimoles of mercury with 100% sensitivity and 100% specificity. So that's like, yeah, there's no coming back. 20 minutes, less than 10 millimoles of mercury. No one has survived in any of the studies that they've done. End-tidal CO2 is more sensitive than cerebral oxygen, oxygen saturations in ROSC prediction. 
Um, so that's pretty good. Uh, if your antel jumps up past 40 millimoles of mercury, you should probably check for a pulse because that's um, a good metabolic indicator. Um, the one caveat to that is if you, you do end up giving sodium bicarb, that will cause, uh, through the bicarbonate buffer system, a big dump of um, CO2 into the lungs, and you'll see that reflected on the monitor. So, um, what else? I think that's pretty much it. So just looking into the future, um, again, all this stuff is like brand new 2018 studies that um, I don't know if your department's gonna implement, but I would definitely wait on your training officers. Don't just like randomly cowboy stuff on your own, but it gives you an idea of what we need to focus on, which is good quality CPR. Um, like good examples would be um, a lot of AHS. I don't think anyone in AHS has um, like a Lucas device or a mechanical CPR device. And I've been on a lot of codes with fire departments and they do an awesome job at CPR. But a lot of the things that I hear from someone that's doing CPR is after they do their five cycles, they don't want to switch off. They say that they're fine. And, uh, and a lot of the time they do look fine and you're like, okay, well fine. And you do the next, but I would make it mandatory, um, just because the research shows that, um, even if they are feeling fine, the quality of CPR is decreasing. So, um, swap those people out, um, say that, this is my code and uh, you're doing a great job, but I'm just gonna get the person to your right to swap you in for the next cycle so you can take a rest. Um, just because CPR is so important. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that and uh, shocks. I time my shocks now on my watch. Um, a lot of the new ambulances have timers and beside them, but uh, we should be, if someone's in a shockable rhythm, we should be doing like every two minutes on the dot, making sure that we're zapping them and uh, giving them the best chance of survival. So that is pretty much everything. I don't think I have anything else to go over. Again, it's a super simple protocol, so I kind of went above and beyond with uh, the extra research that uh, we're finding, but I thought it was super fascinating and I hope you do too. Um, thanks a lot for joining me in my second podcast. I hope they're getting better and not worse. And uh, yeah, I'll see you for episode three in a little bit longer, probably a week.